Hello and welcome to Optimal, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby, and this podcast and my website all focus on one thing, and that's the quest for optimal health. Our goal is to help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And also make sure to go over to OptimalDX.com and check out our resources on the site. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. All right, hello and welcome everyone. Welcome to Optimal the Podcast. Dr. Dick and Weatherby here, and I'm joined by Beth Ellen Delulio in Florida. Hey, Beth. Hi, hi. How are things going? They're going great. Thank Good. You. Well, Beth has been diving into one of our favorite topics from 2020, which was COVID-19. I think Beth has probably been about a year since we first started talking about sort of the nutritional angles with COVID. Is that about right? Mm-hmm. Maybe a little mm-hmm. bit sooner in March 2020. But obviously, mm-hmm. a lot's happened since then. So we wanted to kind of do a podcast looking at the pandemic that has become an endemic, as Beth <laughs> put out in her white paper here. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So I wanted to kind of give a little update on just this whole concept of the comorbidities, the risk factors, and looking at how can we as functional medicine practitioners, nutritionists, naturopaths, integrative medicine providers, how can we do one of two things? One is how can we help our patients uncover and identify areas of their metabolism and weaknesses in their systems so that if, God forbid, they succumb to COVID, that their risk of having an adverse outcome are diminished. We obviously can't predict who is going to have an adverse outcome, but there are certain things that are obviously within a person's control that are helpful. So we're going to talk about that. And then I want Beth, she's been diving into a lot of the nutritional side around COVID and talking about prevention from a nutritional perspective. Because as we were just talking about, Beth, what you put in your mouth i.e. your nutritional status and the choices that you're making around food is 100% within one's control on some level. So I'm really looking forward to having you dive into that a little bit. But before we do, let's talk a little bit about what's been happening with the pandemic. So COVID-19 was declared a pandemic in March of 2020. So just a little bit over a year ago, according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, by the end of 2020, there were roughly 83 million cases. Now we have to remember, those are people that have been tested and were found to have been positive. So 83 million cases, 1.8 million deaths worldwide. By the 1st of April, 2021, there were 130 or 129 million cases, 2.8 million deaths worldwide. And then by last count, April 14th, 137.8 million cases worldwide, 2.9 million deaths. Now, This is obviously a big, big problem. So earlier in the pandemic, clinicians and researchers noted that the most severe cases and fatalities due to COVID-19 tended to be older people and have underlying chronic disorders. So one of the things that I think we can take a look at is this whole concept of comorbidities, characteristics, and risk factors. So there's some studies that came out showing that the severity of the COVID response was statistically and significantly higher in certain groups of people, those people that had immunosuppression, people with malignancies, and certain chronic diseases such as diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, lung, liver, and kidney disease. And then the other thing they noticed too was that inflammatory markers were significantly higher in those with severe disease as well. So when we look at these 
comorbidities and characteristics associated with symptomatic and severe COVID, we need to take a look at our patient population to see whether or not there are things that we can do from an assessment perspective and also from a treatment perspective to minimize and lower the risks of these severe and specific comorbidities. Not much we can do about age. If you're older than 50, especially over 80, statistically, you're going to have a more severe outcome. People with malignancies, again, that's difficult from us from our functional medicine nutritional perspective to deal with someone that already has a malignancy. But there are things that we can do to mitigate the risk of cardiovascular disease. There are things that we can do to mitigate the risk for blood sugar dysregulation and type 2 diabetes. There are things that we can do to mitigate the risk for hypertension. And there are definitely lifestyle factors that we can talk about with our patients to minimize this risk. Unfortunately, they have noticed that people with darker skin increase melanin. So these would be ethnicities such as Blacks and South Asians. So African population typically has, due to their darker skin, their increased melanin. Statistically, they have a significantly higher risk of severity of COVID if they succumb. Low vitamin D. Yeah, no, again, (laughs) absolutely vitamin D. We can't (laughs) forget that. So we'll be talking about vitamin D later as well. So absolutely. Lifestyle factors, smoking, excessive alcohol intake, liver disease is on there as well. So things that we can do to mitigate liver disease. Some of the things that you can't control is being male. I don't know, Beth, if you saw anything about anything to do with the Y chromosome, why men are more susceptible or not. I haven't seen specifics. I didn't dig into that specifically. They tend to have more severe COVID. Maybe they don't eat as well. (laughs) Maybe they don't. Yeah. Maybe they don't take care of themselves very well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Some other things that increase one's risk are certain medications, lack of sunlight exposure. So that would be across the board. What else? Pollution. So those people living in big major cities, we look at the risks that are happening in India right now. Major cities in India have very, very high risks of pollution. Oxidative stress, again, these are things that we can help mitigate and we can assess our patients for their risk for oxidative stress. We did a whole podcast on oxidative stress last year, pulmonary disease. And then looking here at the unhealthy Western-style diet, and I want Beth, I want you to kind of go into that. So there are overlapping risk factors. So if you have more of these going on, if you're older and you have kidney failure and you have cardiovascular issues, it only compounds and makes your risk a little bit more. But what I want you to do now, Beth, is kind of talking a little bit about the dietary aspects. You've done some research on looking at the diet. So we'll look at these early dietary impacts. Then we'll talk a little bit about some of the biomarkers that we can measure. And then we'll finish up again, looking at more of a prevention through nutrition perspective. So can you hit us with the unhealthy diet as a common denominator? (laughs) Yeah, this should probably come as no surprise, but I think people need to hear it kind of over and over again, because you hear so much about junk food and there's so much commercialization and advertising for junk food. You never hear as much information about healthy food. So I think we should keep repeating this. (laughs) So an unhealthy diet, we'll talk about what those components of unhealthy diet are, but it's actually a common denominator in many chronic diseases, as we know. And it's a leading cause of early death and disability. As a matter of fact, in the United States, a poor diet is the leading underlying cause of death. And that's even trumping tobacco use as a cause. So diet for sure. And like you said, that's something we can control. You make a decision about what you're going to eat or drink at least three times a day, if not five or six times a day. So we have control over that. She said, I think people need better nutrition education. I think lack of nutrition education is a huge problem. People don't realize the connection 
between an unhealthy diet and an unhealthy body, basically. And sometimes people don't have access to fresh fruit and fresh food is key to a healthy diet. So actually having it being in poverty or having you know limited access to fresh food is an issue. But once you have a poor diet and you have these metabolic dysfunctions, metabolic disorders like hypertension and diabetes, they cause chronic stress in the body. So then they compromise immunity and even cause damage to blood vessels, right? We have the endothelial dysfunction that can occur. So we have to stick, go backwards, backwards, backwards and start with the diet so we don't cause this metabolic disruption that then leads to the chronic diseases and chronic stress in the body. And a lot of times we see with a poor diet and lack of exercise too is a huge issue, but abdominal essential obesity especially is a risk factor for inflammation and for a lot of these chronic diseases and for COVID. And that's a visual clue. As soon as you, some, you see somebody or they come in your office, because BMI alone, somebody can have a high BMI, but they're very muscular, so their weight for height is high, you have to take a look at the person. So if you see that abdominal obesity around the center, you know that they're at increased risk for chronic disease and inflammation, and again, even COVID. And metabolic syndrome, you can bet that once you take a closer look at their biomarkers, that they're probably developing metabolic syndrome if they don't already have it. So again, now with COVID, the same thing, they're finding that diet and being overweight and the central obesity is a risk factor. And it was interesting, they found in patients younger than 60, there was a study that showed that a BMI of 30 or 34, because remember 18 to 25 is ideal pretty much, but a BMI of 30 to 34 under age 60, they were twice as likely to be admitted to acute care and 1.8 times more likely to be admitted to critical care units. And that was, again, with COVID-19. If they had a BMI of 35 or above, they were 2.2 times more likely to be admitted to acute care, and then 3.6 times more likely to require critical care. So that was a really interesting, we know that, but that's a very interesting way to put it. The higher your BMI due to obesity, the more likely you'll end up in an ICU unit, basically. And I had to note that 40% of the U.S. population has a BMI over 30. So remember, it's over 30, 30 to 34 is when you start to increase your risk of going into acute care and probably critical wow. care. That's yeah. a staggering statistic. It really is. It all ties together. You know, if you have an unhealthy diet, and again, we're not talking if someone, this would be an interesting study, if someone gained a lot of weight, eating a lot of almonds and avocados and healthy foods, would they have the same level of chronic disease as someone who reached that weight in abdominal obesity, eating a lot of junk food and lacking these important nutrients. So to me, I always thought they should do a study like that, but I haven't seen it done. But an unhealthy, we're talking about an unhealthy weight gain, unhealthy abdominal obesity, it affects your immune system. Nutritional status affects the competence of your immune system. And again, that has to do a lot to do with micronutrients and inflammation, but it affects metabolism or metabolic balance. So a nutritional assessment really should always be part of a COVID assessment for sure. At risk, let's see, patients patient at risk, they're characterized by significant changes in inflammatory markers and nutrition-related parameters. And we do, again, have a table of an advanced COVID-19 biomarkers that we tend to see are higher in COVID-19 and what we see that tend to be lower in COVID-19. So we can talk about that in a little bit. But the inflammatory markers obviously tend to be higher. And a lot of times, if we look at nutrients that help to suppress inflammation, a lot of those are missing in an unhealthy Western-style diet. And that's, I'm a real advocate for supplementation for someone that I know is not consuming adequate micronutrients. And 
there's a lot of noise about whether or not people should supplement, but I'm saying most people in the United States are at risk from micronutrient deficiencies and yeah. should be using targeted nutrition support. So yeah. a Western-style diet, I think we all know, high in sugar, excess sugar, saturated fat, animal-based products, animal fat, animal protein, highly refined carbohydrate-based foods, and those all contribute to the chronic diseases that then contribute to COVID-19 or severe COVID-19 mm. and obesity. So they even found that excess saturated fat, and usually I'm going to say from animal-based products because there are a lot of reasons they're pro-inflammatory. There's a buildup of toxins in animal fat. So when you eat animal fats, you're getting all the toxins the animal ate. But excess fat, saturated fat, especially animal fat, promoted chronic activation of the innate immune system, but then inhibited the adaptive immune system. And the adaptive immune system is responsible for antibody production. You need those antibodies. We know we need the antibodies to recognize the spike protein to fight off COVID-19. So if you have a suppressed adaptive immune system, you're going to be in trouble. And we know immune function, it relies on sufficiency of certain nutrition factors. Fresh fruits and vegetables, and really no fewer than five a day is the norm. But even the World Health Organization recommends an increase in that to four servings of fruits and five servings of veggies for the day for COVID. Now, that should be at the end of every news forecast. It should right. be on a commercial once or twice a day, whatever people are watching. should be all over social media. So the World Health Organization is saying, listen, you need four servings of fresh fruit, five servings of fresh veggies a day to help reduce your risk of COVID. That's huge. And yeah. it's relatively cheap. And other vitamins, your vitamins A, C, D, and E, your B vitamins, your minerals, your copper, iron, selenium, zinc, and magnesium. We know that those things help support the immune system. So you got to have a robust antibody response too, so that when you are exposed to COVID or if you're exposed to COVID, you're going to be able to get rid of it. And again, I know people know what an unhealthy diet looks like, but there was a nurse's health study and it revealed an inflammation or inflammatory pattern, a dietary pattern that's inflammatory. Again, High in sugar, sweetened soft drinks, which I just can't mm -hmm. get over that people still drink those every day. Yeah, there are so many good alternatives. The refined greens, even the diet soft drinks, processed meats. So thing, a diet high in those elements, but low in wine, get these people like this, but low in wine, coffee, cruciferous vegetables, and yellow vegetables was found to be a very pro-inflammatory diet. So a little bit of wine, and I advise my clients, I go, listen, two or three ounces of wine with two or three frozen grapes is a nice little treat. You can have a little happy hour for yourself, <laughs> you know, but you got some wine in there, some grape, it can be a healthy little treat. Not too much, but wine and coffee, cruciferous vegetables and yellow vegetables would be anti-inflammatory. So if you are going to consume a lot of sweet and soft drinks and junk food and refined grains and, stuff and things like that, at least include the other foods, and we'll talk again about other phytonutrients that would help counter that inflammatory pattern. Because a healthy dietary pattern, there is no question, and I would debate anybody, there's a huge amount of research that shows a healthy dietary pattern reduces your risk, not just reduces your risk of disease, but if you have those diseases, reduces the severity of those diseases. And in some cases, you can reverse some of those, what things we accept as chronic diseases. So they're really metabolic dysfunction. So if your car isn't running right, if you put the right fuel in it and the right oil changes and the spark plugs and everything else, all of a sudden your car starts to run right and people are so surprised at that. Or your dog or your cat, you go into the vet and they always ask what you're feeding the thing, right? And then they make some adjustments and all of a sudden the pet can get better. So 
we definitely, definitely want to adopt a healthier diet. So that's an abundance of plant-based foods, even low-fat dairy, preferably fermented. I know dairy, there's a whole debate about dairy we could talk about for an hour, but low-fat dairy and fermented dairy is a good thing in the diet if you tolerate it. Fish and seafood, and then, of course, reductions in things like too much red meat and processed foods and processed meats especially. So it's whole real foods that haven't had all the nutrients processed out of them and whole foods that haven't had all these additives added into them, which that's another thing processing does. Takes out all the good things and add back some pretty nasty things. So it's actually been declared that diet is a modifiable risk factor for chronic disease and severe COVID. Mm -hmm. And it just kills me that it's not being included in every press release. Again, every time they give advice about protecting yourself from COVID, they should be saying, Eat a citrus fruit every day. Eat your fruits and vegetables. Have a whole foods diet. Cut out the junk food. And if they you say it often enough, then that's how people learn, right? Through repetition. Yeah. So an abundance of fresh fruits and veggies. And some people aren't going to cut out these unhealthy things, right? So I do an 80-20. So 80% of your diet is really pretty healthy. Then 20% of your diet can probably be pretty junky and you can still maintain health. If you can't, then you got to get a little stricter right. and have a 90% healthy. But 10%, unhealthy, has some psychological value, you've got to admit. So I tell people, you're like, cheesecake, good, eat it for breakfast. The rest of the day, you're going to have a really super healthy diet. <laughs> or pizza, you know, they put pizza in there on the unhealthy dietary pattern, but you can load up pizza with pizza, as we say in Rhode Island, pizza. You can load it up with veggies and spinach and onions and olives and all these things that are healthy. So all of a sudden, it actually becomes pretty healthy. So basically an anti-inflammatory Mediterranean style diet, or even the DASH diet, which stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. Everybody needs to learn what DASH stands for because all of a sudden they're saying, hey, you can stop hypertension with your diet as well as you can stop it with medication. So again, the DASH diet is something people need to adopt. And it's all the same story. Lots of fruits and veggies, fresh fruits and veggies. And again, the World Health Organization came out and said, four servings of fruit five servings of veggies a day, and that's every day. And then, of course, adequate whole grains, meats and proteins, beans, legumes, things like that. But whole foods, real foods, and then micronutrients we tend to forget a lot about. So I think that we're going to talk a bit about vitamin C and vitamin D and zinc specifically. But another thing a plant-based diet does is keep a healthy gut microbiome or microbiota thriving in your gut. And that's important too, because they are finding that healthy microbiome can impart protective immunity to its host, helps regulate inflammation, can have a direct effect on the lungs, which are a primary target of the SARS-CoV-2, right? That spike protein gets into the epithelial lining, gets in the lung, stays in there and replicates. And that's when people get into real, real trouble. So probiotic supplements, if you need them, or fermented foods, and fiber from the plant-based foods, and whey protein and pea protein seem to support a healthy microbiota as well. So it's really important that if people aren't already including these things in their diet, start to introduce them. I don't, I never tell people I'm going to take something away first. First thing we're going to add in things, right? Add those fruits and veggies and herbs and spices. We forget a lot. Those are plant-based compounds. There's very specific research on those. And again, there's never enough research. If it's not patentable, you're usually not going to see the depth of research and funding mm -hmm. that you would see for that research. But phytochemicals, polyphenols, things in your fruits and veggies, and things in coffee even, may have a therapeutic potential against COVID-19. So flavonoids, polyphenols, curcumin, we know, comes from turmeric as a spice, very, very important. 
and anthocyanins also, and you can find those in fruits and veggies again, are these phytochemicals, phytonutrients, I like to call them. And they're basically, they have metabolic effects. So they're beyond the micronutrients. This is a whole new class of nutrients, really, and you're only going to get them from plant-based foods. So I can't push that enough. And tea, the green tea, even black tea, which is basically fermented or oxidized green tea, you get certain phytonutrients from the tea, green or black as well. So adding these things in is really, really, really important. I can't stress enough. Yeah, it's so interesting when you're talking about all this, because we have a pharmacy available to us (laughs) in nature, right? And that's, I think, kind of a little bit about what you're talking about is if you eat a good, well-balanced plant-based diet that has a lot of these polyphenols and flavonoids and things like that, you are providing your body with the very building blocks that it needs to remain healthy. Mm-hmm. And if you have mm-hmm. some of these issues that are comorbidities for COVID and you start adopting things like the DASH diet and things like that, you have the ability to pull yourself back from these diseases so that you are actually more optimally healthy than you were when you first started. So very, very cool. Do you mind if we jump quickly into looking at some biomarkers as a blood chemistry analysis company? I think it's important for us to take a look at some biomarkers, but then I want to jump back into kind of finishing and wrapping up with looking at sort of targeted nutritional support if we could. So there are definitely ways that we can use our blood chemistry screens. If someone has a severe or if they already have COVID, there's some great research, and then we'll put some of this up on the blog that Beth Mm -hmm. has done that really talk about certain biomarkers start to shift and start indicate and predict whether or not someone might have an adverse outcome. So the literature review reveals that COVID-19 patients with severe disease had significantly lower levels of lymphocytes, lower levels of natural killer cells, B cells, CD4 and CD8 T cells, compared to those with mild or moderate disease. They had increases in their basophils and neutrophils that are reflecting increased severity as well. We measure lymphocytes, we measure basophils, Mm -hmm. we measure neutrophils. There was also significant correlation was found between mortality. So those people that do unfortunately succumb to COVID-19. What they found was that if your white blood cell count was elevated, your neutrophil count was elevated, your AST and ALT, and your LDH levels, three of the liver enzymes were elevated, creatinine was elevated, and CRP was elevated. And then conversely, we were looking at decreased albumin and decreased lymphocyte counts. So these are all things that we can measure on a standard, pretty entry-level blood chemistry screen and CBC. So these are things that we should be paying attention to. Now, one of the things that Beth and I were talking about before we started recording was, okay, so there's all this information about the movement of these biomarkers reflecting whether or not someone has a severe outcome. Are the things that we can do from a more preventative perspective, looking at it through the ODX lens, through the functional health reports that we produce, that can help us help bring patients back to a state of more optimal health so that if they do have COVID, that they're going to have a less risk of an adverse outcome. So some of these biomarkers are definitely things that we want to pay attention to. So I want to focus in a little bit on some ones that I think, Beth, you had identified as being definitely things that we can monitor in our patients Mm -hmm. prior to them succumbing to COVID and wanting to keep them within an optimal range. Mm -hmm. And the first was albumin. What they noticed was that changes in albumin may be important to monitoring progression improvement of COVID-19. But even in terms of before someone succumbs to COVID, I think it's very important to make sure that the albumin level is definitely within the normal range, but ideally within the optimal range. 
For those people that are not familiar with albumin, low serum albumin is really strongly associated with critical illness, mortality, inflammation, and certain disease states, organ dysfunction, pancreatitis, things like that. And decreased levels are likely due to an increase in, in capillary permeability, decrease in protein synthesis, reduced total mass and half-life of albumin, and things like that. But also inflammation, severe chronic malnutrition, malignancy can also lead to hypoalbuminemia. So what you want to do is you want to make sure that your patient's albumin levels are replete within that optimal level as well. Beth, jump in here if there's anything on albumin that you remember reading about. Yeah, they were, it seemed like, oh, if it's before and above, you seem to have a better chance of not having severe COVID. So about that cutoff, there were a couple of studies that had different non-survivors here with 3.35 versus survivors at 3.92. There are a couple of different levels. One was a non-survivor was 3.05 versus the survivors with 3.76. But we know if you're at about four you're doing good. or above, yeah, you should be doing well. I thought that study that you were just talking about with the 305 non-survivors mm-hmm. versus survivors of 376, they were looking at albumin correlated inversely with total white blood cell count, neutrophil lymphocyte ratio in those patients mm-hmm. as well. Let's talk a little bit about Neutrophil yeah, lymphocyte ratio. This is something that we've written articles on and we've talked about. It is calculated in the software. Remembering that neutrophils are the first white blood cell responders during an infection. So as soon as someone comes in contact with COVID, this is a disease they've never had before. So we have that innate immune response. Lymphocytes are the white blood cells that become B cells and T cells. So calculating the ratio between those two can be a really important clue to inflammatory states and prognosis in COVID-19. So that biomarker in and of itself, mm-hmm. the neutral to lymphocyte ratio, now there's the absolute values, not the percent values, serves as a biomarker of inflammation. Clearly, it really does. And something that you mm-hmm. should be measuring, we measure it on every patient in the software. So you do have that measurement, but it is an inflammatory biomarker. So when they were comparing severe to non-severe COVID-19, a meta-analysis of 15 studies revealed that individuals with severe COVID-19 presented with higher neutrophils and neutrophil to lymphocyte ratios and lower lymphocyte counts. These are three things that we can measure very, very easily on a blood chemistry analysis. Now, the question goes again, Beth, is this something that we need to pay attention to in our regular patients that aren't dealing with COVID as sort of something to keep an eye on in terms Mm -hmm. of if someone was to be exposed to COVID and have a COVID infection, that if we keep that NLR within the optimal range, if we keep the neutrophils within the optimal range, the lymphocytes Mm -hmm. within the optimal range, are they going to have a better potential outcome if they have COVID? I mean, it seems so. I found there was one said the NLR cutoff for COVID-19 was 2.4. So as you went above that, you're more likely to have been positive for COVID. But then for severity, the NLR of 3.27 and above, you're going to have more severe COVID. And 5.72 and above was more associated with mortality. So if you already have COVID, yes, as that NLR goes up, you know that your neutrophils are out of control, your lymphocytes are dropping down, you're in big trouble. But yes, without COVID too, most likely it's just a sign of inflammation. So what's going on in the body? You know, and there is some work that's being done showing that people might have these sensitivity, like food sensitivities that you can't measure antibodies to, but you can look at the neutrophil response to certain hmm. foods that might set off a reaction. You might not have, not have any antibodies, but that innate neutrophil response is they're so pro-inflammatory neutrophils are, right? Those first responders. So that could be a sign that there's underlying food sensitivities. You didn't pick up with the testing. 
or what else is causing inflammation in the body, pro-inflammatory diet, or toxins are very inflammatory. So the, the neutrophil lymphocyte ratio, the NLR, being increased outside of the realm of COVID means inflammation. So yeah, that means you want to dig around and see what else is going on. Did they also have a high CRP? Did they also have an elevated ferritin? Do they have other things that indicate they have inflammation? But yeah, as long as you remember that's a code for inflammation, then you got to dig deeper with or without COVID. Well, I know you've read a lot about interleukins and cytokines. We have got a podcast and pretty a lot of information on those. So I'm going mm-hmm. to defer you to go to our blog, optimaldx.com mm-hmm. forward slash blog. Mm-hmm. I want to focus in on three biomarkers that are very strongly associated with nutrition, vitamin mm-hmm. C, vitamin D, and zinc. So let's start off with vitamin C. Mm-hmm. Most people know that humans, I think blue-footed booby birds and yeah. guinea pigs are the only three animals that don't make their, and certain primates don't make their own vitamin C. Mm-hmm. So we know as the providers that we are, that vitamin C possesses very, very potent antiviral, anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, and immunomodulating effects, making it a focus research in COVID. Again, it's one of those things, why are they not talking about, mm. make sure you get enough vitamin C. Like you uh. said, you know, citrus fruits, you sound like a great rep for the Florida Citrus Council. Florida, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That lives in Florida, so oranges are abundant there. But mm-hmm. it is really, really important. There are two things. One, you can measure it. Obviously, you can measure it in the serum. Or you can just say, hey, listen, let's not measure it. Let's just make sure that you're getting enough. Mm-hmm. I guess Five that's... servings of fruit vegetables and four servings of fruits a day. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And the other thing that they noticed was that vitamin C and other antioxidants were inversely correlated with CRP. So mm-hmm. CRP, a measurement of inflammation, be it the more high sensitivity CRP or the sort of generalized CRP that you're looking at. If those start to go up, I'm not saying that your vitamin C levels are going to go down. I think the point being is as your vitamin C levels go up, probably your CRP levels come down, which is the way mm-hmm. that you go. So that's a reflection of antioxidant depletion. And mm-hmm. oxidative stress inflammatory processes with that elevated CRP and low vitamin C. So let's talk about measuring it. Yes, it can be measured in the serum. Low serum vitamin C has been recognized as a factor in a number of different conditions. So serum vitamin C levels of 0.41 milligrams per deciliter or 23 U moles per liter are considered hypovitaminosis. Levels mm-hmm. below 0.19 were considered to be deficient. So we know when we look at these biomarker values that we're obviously deficiency is something that we definitely want to avoid. But there is that whole concept of need, as opposed to being overtly deficient. So we want to make sure that our patients are replete in these particular conditions, uh, vitamins. So a small study of critically ill COVID-19 adults revealed underlying vitamin C deficiency. So there's a very strong correlation between making sure that you have enough vitamin C, if you are, I would say, do it preventatively. Um, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Anything else about vitamin C? Obviously, you can take it in food form, citrus fruits and vegetables, but also in supplemental form. This mm-hmm. is something that I have gotten asked a lot about is what is the best form of vitamin C? We've obviously got ascorbates, you've got ascorbic acid, you've got, mm-hmm. I think, even delay, what are they called, uh, time release and things mm-hmm. like that. Do you have any mm-hmm. thoughts on? Just sort of add to this discussion? Well, if you have some GI upset from taking too much vitamin C, the buffered form is good, but it depends on how much you're going to take. Everybody, I have to take 6,000 milligrams for the day, or I get really stuffy and I bruise. And I know if I don't get my six grams a day, 
that mm. that happens. So I don't take the buffered form six grams because then you'd get a lot of minerals. So I'm okay with just off the you know, capsules that aren't buffered. I tend to do fine with those. And then I take about two grams or three grams of the buffered form. So it depends what you tolerate because there is a bottle tolerance. If you need it, you're going to absorb more. Honestly, it depends on the person. If somebody has GI upset, then I go right to the buffered form. We'll see how much they need. There's even an ascorbate flush that you can do under supervision to see what you might need on a regular basis. So it's, again, sometimes I just get this off the shelf, a now product or Swanson product because it's vitamin C and I do find with the ascorbic acid form. Yeah. I get the buffered form, but you don't want to do a flush of the buffered form. You'd have so, you overdoing it on the minerals. So it depends on the person's tolerance, I'll say, and the amount that you need. Again, I had my uncle Tony, who was such an advocate for IV vitamin C. Every single surgical patient got 3,000 milligrams of IV vitamin C. And that prevented ARDS in the winter 40 plus years ago. So that was IV. So obviously it's well tolerated. But when you're taking it in supplement form, you're going to find out that some is going to, certain levels are going to cause it flush to go right through you. And you know that you have to back off from that amount. Or flush, if you take we're talking about a gastrointestinal flush, gastrointestinal. not like a massive flush, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Flush right out the door there, right out the back door. And then you've kind of had enough. But some people will take just a thousand or 500 milligrams and maybe they have some sensitivity. Mm. Then we can go to the ester form or the buffered form. Yeah, that's the form I was thinking of the ester. Yeah. So it depends on what they tolerate and absorb. Let's talk a little bit about vitamin D. You wrote a number of articles we've done discussions on vitamin D and COVID. Are there any increased or new revelations that you came across in your research that caught your attention that we would want well, to Well, yeah, I mean, there's still some noise about this out there saying, well, we don't know if vitamin D is important in COVID. And to me, it's an open and shut case because if you have a risk factor for vitamin D deficiency, you need supplementation. And if we don't know what your blood level is, get a blood level. Where I've seen researchers and doctors out there, I'm sorry, but they're like, no, I'm not going to supplement vitamin D. And they don't know the person's level. And they don't know the person's intake. And they don't know the person's exposure to the sun. So that has to be assessed first. And I'm finding uh, quite a bit of research with some levels, some recommendations. Like research is suggestion that if your level of vitamin D, 25 hydroxy vitamin D, 25 OH vitamin D is 30 nanograms per ml or greater, you're going to have a reduced disease severity and mortality with COVID. And they did the studies, people below 20 were in much worse shape and below at 12, they were in very bad shape in the ICU. So the levels now, they find they're taking these vitamin D levels in these ICU patients or even coming into the ER sometimes. And if the levels are kept above 30, it seems like they do do much better. Disease severity is reduced and mortality is reduced. And it's so important to the innate immunity and it increases if you have vitamin D deficiency, you're at risk for viral disease. Isn't that enough to convince people that at least check your levels? If you don't want to randomly take supplementation, then at least check your levels and get those levels. And I'm finding some recommendations. 50 to 70 is recommended. 57 nanograms per ml is recommended to get those levels up there. And they found in one case, 76% of patients who presented with vitamin D insufficiency had levels of 20 nanograms per ml or less. And that, again, is it's creeping into the research for COVID. So they need to be testing it. And if it's low, they need to get people's levels up. I can't believe how many people that I've asked about the vitamin D and that doctor is putting on vitamin D, especially up in New England. So it's kind of catching on as a standard, okay, of care, mm. fortunately, when people are looking at the COVID 
susceptibility. So here they had an asymptomatic group who had a vitamin D over 20 and a critically ill group who had vitamin D of less than 20. And in the asymptomatic group, 62 of them had their vitamin D over 20. In the critically ill group, only two had their vitamin D over 20. Mm -hmm. So it's becoming more clear that if your vitamin D, to me, it's clear enough. They want to see a full randomized control study, which is going to be difficult to do in the middle of a crisis in a pandemic. But the research coming out is saying, get those levels at least above 30. And if you can, get them 50 to 70. So that's what I'd like to see. And we'll put this in the blog too, the classification of vitamin D levels. And where are you going to be at danger of toxicity over 100 possibly? What's a normal level? What's insufficient? And then what recommended D intake would be. So we'll have that table in the blog as well. Something that I think one of the people that I've been looking at talked about, there is very, very, very little research out there about too much vitamin D. People always talk right. about it, but when mm-hmm. you look at the research, there really isn't that much. So right. you I said want... one pharmacist said you'd have to get to 300 nanograms per ml to have a problem, but layering on the side of caution, let's say don't go over 100. I think the issue really probably has to do with your calcium metabolism when your vitamin D levels are so high. It's not necessarily the vitamin D. increased calcium. Yep. They haven't seen much toxicity. Nope. So yeah, it's a matter of education and getting physicians to realize they have to check for this. They got to give it above 30 and hopefully 50 to 70, 50 to 80, 50 to 90 even. And then maybe over 100, you can back off. Like I had someone that her level is 18. So I got her on some supplementation, got her to walk outside in the sun and got her to lose weight. And her level went up to 98. I'm like, wow, that was fast in a couple of months. And I did the research and found that with vitamin D, you know, in the summer, we accumulate it, we make it and store it in the fat cells. And then historically, in the winter, you don't have as much food around, you'd lose weight and you would release that vitamin D into circulation. Wasn't that cool? So that seems to what happened to her, but we forget that too. We don't lose well, weight. We stay overweight now. throughout the whole year. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You never release that vitamin D again. So that's well, why that's people with obesity yeah, are at risk. All right. We'll take one quick look at zinc and then mm-hmm. finish up by topping it up with some of the nutritional info. But zinc is another really important trace nutrient to look at. We mm-hmm. can measure it, obviously, in the red blood cells. We can measure it in the serum. So trace Mineral participates in a wide range of metabolic processes, including antioxidant reactions, neurobehavioral development, cellular growth, immunity, development and activation of T lymphocytes and mm-hmm. inhibition of viral replication. So, huh, COVID, mm-hmm. wouldn't that be a nice thing to have happen? <laughs> it also supports the integrity and the barrier function of epithelial cells. Hmm, what tissues are more mm-hmm. at risk for COVID? Skin mm-hmm. and mucous membranes. So mm-hmm. these become it's... compromised in zinc deficiency. So fortunately, mm-hmm. Zinc is something that we can easily supplement, and supplementation can improve epithelial barrier integrity. Mm-hmm. Zinc can also help to reduce the cytokine storm. So cytokine storm is something that is characteristic of severe COVID due to its modulation of T-cell activity. So zinc is definitely one of those nutrients that you want to be measuring, and you want to make sure that your patients are replete and not mm-hmm. in a state of zinc deficiency. So what they found was 16% of all deep respiratory infections are caused by zinc deficiency worldwide. Well, that was fascinating. Zinc deficiency is commonly observed in immunosuppression, asthma, COPD, pneumonia, cystic fibrosis. A lot of those tissues obviously are epithelial tissues. So mm-hmm. definitely important to pay attention to those. So zinc and COVID-19, some key points. 
Zinc deficiency is common and associated with a severe infection. So like we were talking about earlier, making sure that you have enough zinc prior or regularly during your uh, moments when you're not suffering with mm-hmm. illness, and definitely when you don't have COVID-19, are going to make it a lot less likely that you'll be deficient and if you succumb to COVID. Medications too can deplete zinc. They can deplete magnesium. People yeah. forget about that a lot, but they can deplete zinc. And of course, a loss of taste and smell is just one of the signs of zinc deficiency. Yeah, and also one of those first signs now that's talking about, this is one of the very early signs. If you've noticed that you've got a loss of taste and smell, you know, go get tested for COVID. So I thought that, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I know when COVID first came out, you and I had some long discussions about chicken chicken and the egg scenario was somehow was the virus causing zinc levels to plummet and therefore causing the hypoglycia Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. lack of taste and smell and things like that. Measuring it, you can look at it in the plasma. So low plasma Mm -hmm. thing was defined as less than 60 micrograms per deciliter or less than 9.2 micromoles per liter. A prospective study found significantly lower fasting serum levels in 47 hospitalized COVID-19 patients with median serum levels of 74.5 micrograms per deciliter versus a median of 105 in healthy controls. More than 57% of patients were blatantly zinc deficient with an odds ratio of 5.54 for developing complications including odds and prolonged hospital stays. So, I want to say that's interesting because our optimal range of press is 80 to 100 micrograms per deciliter. So those folks who had the 74 weren't as severe, but they still did get the COVID. Yeah, yeah. So they were above the deficiency, but they were maybe not optimal. Yeah, so we're just going to repeat that optimal range, 80 to 100 mm-hmm. micrograms per deciliter. Mm-hmm. Now that is serum zinc. So that's about 12 to 15 mm-hmm. micromoles per liter. And the study that you cite in the blog post and the research basically said that's what's needed for maintenance of homeostasis. So mm-hmm. very, very standard reference range in Quest is 50 to 130, LabCorp 56 to 135. So there you go. There's your out of optimal range low is between 50 and 80, which mm-hmm. is not necessarily clinically zinc deficient. But if you're falling into that gray area, Mm-hmm. Start supplementing and get it to go back up into that optimal range. I think that would greatly help. And I want to mention too, of course, protein is very important. It could be a whole podcast. So yeah, yeah. We just touched upon it. But I want to mention one other thing too is omega-3 fatty acid status is important. A good omega-3 index is important because it's anti-inflammatory, inflammatory. But supplementing during COVID-19 is controversial. So we don't want to supplement with omega-3 fatty acids during the viral infection. That came up as controversial. So I just wanted to mention that, but people can pick that up in the blog post, blog post as well. So vitamin C and antioxidant supplementation. Prevention, about 2,000 milligrams for the day. Ideally split that up into two to four doses a day. So 500 to 1,000, two times a day. So total of 2,000 milligrams for the day. Now, if you're actually treating with IV vitamin C, they're going up to 10,000 milligrams a day. And in some cases, very, very high doses. It was 50 milligrams per kilogram every six hours, but that's for the hospitalized patient, you know, who's under supervision, who doesn't have risk factors. Some folks can't tolerate high doses of vitamin C like that. But for us, taking supplementation on the outside, 2,000 milligrams a day of oral vitamin C should be tolerated, especially if you split it up into doses. Like I said, I got to take about 6,000 for the day or I see effects of not having enough. Hydration is super, super important as well. And and vitamin C alone as an antioxidant isn't always the answer. You want to add other antioxidants like vitamin E. Vitamin E, and it's really eight compounds, but tocopherols and tocotrienols, they help to regenerate vitamin C. So vitamin C and vitamin E work together. Alpha lipoic acid, a master antioxidant, and acetylcysteine, 
L-carnitine if they tolerate it. There's some people that wouldn't tolerate mm-hmm. that. Coenzyme Q10, especially if you're on an HMG co-reductase inhibitor, if you're on a statin drug, you're not making enough coenzyme Q10. So it's important to supplement with that. And then zinc and selenium is important as well. So that base supplementation with C orally, 2,000 milligrams for the day, and then the other antioxidants are important as well, very important as well. So there's our vitamin C. IV doses are much, much higher. That's kind of right. like, you know. You're not going to trigger that flushing as well? No, well, not with the IV. That's yeah. interesting. They just, no, they just tolerate it. And again, the trauma, years ago, they were doing studies, 1,000 milligrams an hour of IV, up to 24,000 milligrams of vitamin C intravenously for trauma mm-hmm. patients. And there's been some work with that. Now, supplementing with zinc, of course, it's important to find high zinc foods. And I tell people, look, for if you want to know anything about a certain nutrient, just type in LPI, the letters LPI, and then the nutrient is Linus Pollen Institute zinc. And it'll come up with a great full summary on zinc and food sources. So if you want to know food sources of a nutrient, LPI, zinc, LPI, vitamin C, what have you. But if you supplement it with zinc, about 25 milligrams a day should do the trick, maybe to 40 milligrams for the day. More than that, you can induce a copper deficiency. So I have a good multi that gives you 25 milligrams for the day and two capsules. And I don't take much more above that unless I feel like a cold is coming on or something like that. And then I'll take a zinc combined with copper. There's a nice, and this will be in the blog too, recommended intakes of certain nutrients with key roles in disease susceptibility. Again, vitamin C, if you're sick or diseased, one to two grams for the day. Vitamin D, 2,000 I use for the day should be your normal supplementation. And then increase as needed to get your vitamin D 25-hydroxy levels up to what you need them to be. Vitamin E, about 15 milligrams for the day. 200 I use for the day if someone's sick. Selenium, between 50 and 200 mics for the day. Zinc, again, you're down there at the RDA of 8 to 11 milligrams a day, but I go up to 25, especially if you have any loss of taste or a low alkaline phosphatase or any GI issues where you're not absorbing these nutrients very well, you're going to need more. Right. You're going to need more, yeah, to consume more. And then iron is another story. When, probably right here. <laughs> There's always <laughs> other stories. Story. <laughs> yeah, do you need iron? Do you not need it? It's going to yeah. build up. Do you tolerate it? So, But, you know, to me, I always start with a good base multivitamin mineral supplement that's well-formulated, that's balanced, that has activated bees in it, and then add on from there. Because I just meet too many people that have taken seven different bottles of seven different nutrients without taking a multi. So they're missing out on certain nutrients and taking too much of other nutrients. So a really good base is super, super important. And that is on top of a really healthy diet. And if you're super healthy and you're growing your own organic food and you can go out in the field and pick it and eat it right away and you're raising your own animals and you know what they eat, you know, you might be okay. But most of the people I know, people that are sick or people have GI issues, need a healthy diet and they need supplementation and they need monitoring, right? With this blood semi-chemistry software is ideal because if you do go too high in something, you can back off. You want to monitor, especially if you're supplementing with targeted nutrition support. Cool. Let's finish up with optimal takeaways. I love this about the work you do, Beth. So I'll just run through some of these optimal takeaways and we'll call it a day, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> until next time. So optimal takeaways for COVID-19, April 2021 kind of approach. So diet, nutritional status, lifestyle are all modifiable risk factors for COVID-19 and its comorbidities. These factors should be highlighted in both public messaging 
and also your own messaging that you're giving to your patients, be it via social media, be it via emails, be it in person. You need to be talking about these things. Diet, nutritional status, lifestyle are all modifiable risk factors for COVID-19 and its comorbidities. Biomarker clues, it provide insight into severity of COVID-19 as well as underlying nutrient insufficiencies and deficiencies, which is why we would recommend getting yourself an ODX account so that you can keep track of these biomarkers. So it is imperative that assessment of key biomarkers and nutrients be part of a COVID-19 evaluation, monitoring, and therapy, especially inflammatory markers, transaminase enzymes, LDH, fibrinogen, white blood cell with differential, neutrocyte, neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, interleukin-6, interleukin-10, and we can get the IL-6 to IL-10 ratio from that as well, mm -hmm. albumin, vitamin C, vitamin D, selenium, and zinc. Remember, optimal ranges are narrower than standard lab ranges and may give earlier clues to imbalances or deficiencies. Healthy dietary pattern modeled on the Mediterranean or DASH diet can help reduce the risk of chronic metabolic disease and in turn reduce risk of severe COVID-19. Minimum of four servings of fruit, five servings of vegetables during COVID and beyond. We'll put some of these up in the blog post as well. Other factors that you should consider, sleep, get enough sleep. Sleep hygiene, and we could probably do a whole podcast on sleep hygiene. <laughs> Stress management, mental health management, social connections, environmental factors, clean air, clean water, clean food, and all of that type of stuff. Finally, be aware that a variety of adverse outcomes can persist even after perceived recovery from COVID. One of the things that we talk about is long COVID, adverse mm -hmm. cardiovascular outcomes, adverse psychological outcomes, adverse neurological complications adverse gastrointestinal complications, adverse cutaneous complications, adverse effects on our food supply and our food security as well. So just making sure that you are dealing with these comorbidity issues and making sure that you have your replete nutritionally so that if you do get COVID, you have a better chance of getting through without an adverse outcome. And then once you're post-COVID, recognizing that you still have to pay attention to all these things because there are adverse outcomes prolonged from even after having COVID-19. Beth, thank you so much for doing all of your amazing research on this. We will be getting blog posts up on some of these relevant pieces of information. Always great talking to you and having you share your insights into nutrition and nutritional therapy. Anything that you want to finish with? Eat your fruits and vegetables and check your vitamin D levels. There you go. There <laughs> you go. Screen. That's from the horse's mouth. That's from Beth Allen Delulia. Thanks, Beth. Thank um, you. If you are interested in what we're doing off, over at Optimal DX, Come check us out. We have our FBCA Mastery Training Program and Certification. If you want to learn more about the knowledge of blood chemistry analysis, we have a training for you. We also have software. We have a free trial. Come on over, get a free trial. Start running some blood tests. Doing this type of preventative work is only going to make your patients healthier. This is Dr. Weatherby. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the other side.